Like, I feel like I'm like afraid of success as much as I am afraid of failure. So they're kind of working alongside each other in this way where, but I don't really know why I'm afraid of the success part. Like I've just, I don't understand why I'm like, can't just be like, that was a good performance or that was a good thing you made. Welcome to The Signal Podcast, the podcast that raises your frequency. I'm Maury Fontanez, purpose coach to some of the leading voices in our culture today, from top CEOs to Hollywood stars, best-selling authors to world-class artists. In coaching these incredible humans, one truth has become abundantly clear. No matter who we are, we all carry pain, joy, and the desire to feel connected to a sense of purpose. This podcast is my way of extending some of the powerful lessons of my proven method to you so that hopefully you too can be inspired to heal the white noise of your limiting beliefs and tune into the signal of your intuitive wisdom. Welcome to Signal. This session today may be relatable to a lot of you out there who are working at your craft and working hard to make that your living and your livelihood. This is a conversation between myself and Carly. Carly is an artist, a musician, and has a business in upholstery. And in this conversation, you are going to hear us talk about how Carly tends to undervalue their work, literally in the way that they price it, and in the way that they view it once they've produced that work. And we're going to apply the method to see if we can break down some of the limiting belief systems that Carly holds around valuing their work and let intuition in to drive those business dealings so that Carly can get exactly what they deserve in business and in life. Hey, Signal listeners. A couple quick disclaimers before we get started. Maury is not a licensed therapist, and this is not a therapy session. Intuition and purpose coaching with Maury is usually a six-month process, and what you're about to hear is just a snippet of what these sessions sound like. That said, this is a real coaching session with real people featuring real strategies that Maury uses in her method. All right, let's get to today's episode. Carly, as we think about this hour that we have together, we want to try to really focus and hone in on one objective that you have or an intention that you have. If you could leave this session and feel either clear or that you've been provided another frame on something that has been bugging you or you feel that is holding you back, what would that be? What's What would you like to say we've achieved in the hour? I think something that I noticed like a thread throughout everything I practice is kind of undervaluing myself or my work or the things that I'm able to produce or not produce. Mm -hmm. And how does that manifest for you? Tell me more, like bring me into your life in undervaluing yourself. How is it showing up? I think sometimes in terms of um, the work I do, um, for instance, upholstery, um, because it's sort of self-directed and it's a new kind of occupation for me. And it involves me having to sort of set, I guess, prices or set my own schedule. I think that I have like a web of anxiety around kind of anytime I'm asking for the price of my labor, for instance. 
And also like when I finish a project, just never being satisfied with it, whether that's within music or within upholstery or any other craft. I think I'm just like very uh, critical of my own work. Mm -hmm. So Carly, would it be fair to say we really want to address this sense of putting a numeric value on your time and your output and simultaneously maybe working on that inner critic so that there can be some grace and some gratitude for what you've produced and and really giving you a chance to see what the outcome of what you've produced in a positive light. Yeah, that sounds good. All right. So I'm going to get into the nitty gritty with you here. You know, I'm a business strategist at heart. That's where I came from. So I love that this is a conversation about valuing self. I will tell you for those of us that have ever identified as female, this is a greater challenge because the things that have been indoctrinated into us from the time we were born and told, you know, who we are, or if we present that way now and people think they can get away with something that they shouldn't. So I don't know if that, does that resonate with you, that lens? I think, yeah, I think that could. Perfect. I didn't want to make any assumptions for you. So let's get into the the details of the business. Can we call your upholstery work? Do you feel that that's your business? You're the sole owner? I am, yeah. It's yeah. not like official business. But yes, yes. It is your business. It is my business. Yeah. Yes. So um, how long have you been doing this and charging for this work and making money? I've been practicing the craft for about three years and I'm still a student. Um, yeah. I take a class. Mm-hmm. And I've probably been um, accepting clients maybe for about two of those years, the last two years. Okay. And tell me a little bit about the kind of influx of clients. Does that feel pretty steady to you? Do you feel that it goes in waves? What's that been like for the last two years? It's been overall, I'd say it's been steady. It definitely comes in waves. Like sometimes I'll all of a sudden have like eight people reach out and they all want something done. And then, you know, usually the amount of people that end up following through on a project kind of falls to the side. And then, but usually it's steady. I will have some kind of periods of time where I'm not working on a project, but then in those times, I sometimes get other jobs just doing set work or stuff in the film business. But I'd say it's pretty steady. But yeah, I, d- I definitely think it comes in waves. And do you have a sense for how these clients come to you? Is it word of mouth? Is it marketing? It's word of mouth. I have like an Instagram page that I don't really put too much into. And it's usually word of mouth. Sometimes I can't figure out like how someone found the Instagram or how they know about me. And I usually ask, but sometimes people are like, this person sent me and I don't know who that person is. So I think it's, yeah, I definitely think it's word of mouth. Yeah. When you finish a project and I'm going to ask you to tell me the first thing that comes to mind, because this is sometimes when inner critic likes to step up and I'm not going to invite them forward yet. (laughs) So when you finish a project, what are some of the things you hear from your clients when they receive your work? They're usually very happy. (laughs) And what do they say? Um, What's the quality and texture of what you're hearing? Sometimes I'm, I hear, wow, or this is amazing, or I love it. Well, without introducing my inner critic. But yes, usually it is positive, um, or they look beautiful, things like that. Okay, excellent. Yeah. And is that a pretty consistent sort of feedback you get? Yes. <laughs> so I'm going to ask inner critic to step forward. And the way I like you to envision this is just like it's a stage and there's a mic standing there and there's one spotlight and inner critic yeah. has to step up and take it. 
So inner critic presents the item and says, oh, but, you know, there's a little fold here or it shouldn't. Oh, if I was doing it again, I would do this. Or um, I couldn't decide which foam to use. This part should have been softer or, um, oh, it would like just constantly or noticing every little detail that probably someone without a trained eye wouldn't notice. But I will pick apart every little thing. I'm trying to not give it to people and present my flaw, like the flaws that I notice because people don't want that. Yeah. To, but um, yeah, the inner critic is usually like, this isn't good enough or this isn't at the professional level that maybe it should be or, oh, I overcharged for this or, oh, I undercharged for this. It's a constant like anxiety about the work not being good enough or if it is good enough that I undercharged, or if it's not good enough that I overcharged. Sure. And how often does inner critic break through and make you say those things out loud to the client? I'm trying really hard to not. I would say 70%. 70% of the time you present it and say, here are all the flaws with what I am giving. Possibly. But I, I maybe it's going down. Maybe like half the time. It also depends on my relationship with the client. Like if we're friends or if they're um, a stranger. Yeah. And in that 30% of the time where inner critic takes a back seat, can you give a sense of what is the strategy you, you use to quiet it? Um, well, my girlfriend has been like, don't say anything. <laughs> so Just the voice like, of your girlfriend in there. Yes. Yeah. Of someone who's like, stop, like, just give the, give the item, like, do not comment on it. Like if the client sees something wrong with it, they can say something, but you don't have to go and point out all the things you wish had been better. Yeah. So listen, one of the things I want to establish, and I'm speaking to inner critic here, is that there is not a single part of you that's disposable. So if inner critic is popping up, it's because they want to present some kind of useful and helpful strategy or dynamic. They want to introduce some self-protective measure to ensure that you're safe. And so if that is their ultimate objective, we need to give them a job. We need to give them a more productive job than this one. Um, And I wanted to point that out to you because often what we do with these kinds of aspects of ourselves like shame or judgment or critic is we try to bury it and just tell it to shut up. And when we do that and we create that kind of vibe of disposability, then it really wants to get our attention. So- One of the first strategies I'd like you to start to utilize right away is that when inner critic comes up, you practice not making them feel disposable. What are some of the things you do or say that tell inner critic they need to go away? Well, I I feel like I usually let them be pretty present (laughs) at the forefront. Yeah. Like most things, like if I write a song, for instance, as soon as I write it, I'm like, this is trash, you know? So, um, so it's pretty empowered. It's pretty empowered. I think I have friends and loved ones in my life that are, that are being like, you need to stop being so critical. Yeah. But I think for myself, I'm usually pretty disappointed in the things I create. Yeah. So let's just really go spend time with this critic then. Um, because I really want to figure them out and I think it'll help you to build a new relationship with them. Can you think back to your life kind of growing up, 
When is the earliest memory you have of Critic showing up? And what was it telling you? I'm sure it started at a much younger age, but I definitely know like a very memorable time was um, in high school when I had the lead in a musical, which is something I'd always wanted. And I would kind of also told the person who um, cast me like, oh, no, no, I'm not good enough for this role. And they're like, no, you're doing the role. And I did it and I was getting a lot of positive feedback. But on the final night, like I just kind of, it just sort of flopped. And I remember just after just feeling so disappointed with myself that like I hadn't lived up to my potential and that like I sabotaged that. And then for years thought I could never be a performer or anything because of like that moment. Mm. Um, But I can't think of exactly when in my childhood, like I think anything I would do, I just never thought was really good enough, but I've always received positive feedback. So I'm not, I don't totally know when. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not. No totally one ever sure. told you you were failing or you weren't good enough. No. Yeah. Okay. So a clue when we look backward and we can identify being told a limiting belief system, right? So the limiting belief system being it's not good enough. The next layer is being around someone who has that experience of themselves. Can you think of anyone you were exposed to consistently that was very hard on themselves? I'm not sure. I feel like it's possible. Like I've tried to think about this before. Like if my mom was that way, but I'm not so sure if she was that way. But I think like me and my brothers were hard on her, but I don't, she didn't just, I didn't like, I've only kind of thought of this recently that I'm like, Oh, was my mom hard on herself? I'm not sure. But like, I think we were kind of critical. Single mom? No. Okay. So can you recall why you were so critical? No, I do know. Like at some point I remember, and it feels so bad to look back and think this way now, but like, just like the kitchen being messy and being like, mom, the kitchen's so messy, like something like that. But like, but I don't know. I mean, she was a great mom and like, yeah, I don't, I don't really know. What did you think about that kid just kind of being critical? What did you need? What did you want? Well, I think honestly, when I would be like, oh, the kitchen's so messy. Like, I think I wanted a cleaner space, <laughs> but like, I mean, eventually that did happen, but also, I mean, she had three kids, like, yeah, I don't know, but Yeah, I'm not really sure. (laughs) So when you say a cleaner space, is that a sense of order? Yes. Were things chaotic or not? Not particularly. Not, I didn't have a chaotic childhood. It wasn't chaotic, I think. But I do know that like I wanted just like a, yeah, more organized space. Yeah. So let's look at your relationship with the critic. When from even that early time of criticizing mom or criticizing yourself for that performance. Let's get into the dynamic of the two of you. What does that critic feel like? Like when you are able to express that critical voice, how does that feel? Good, empowering, comfortable, upsetting? It feels very comfortable. (laughs) Like it feels like I don't want to allow myself to appreciate 
something. There's a couple times I've made something where I can be like, I am proud of this, but generally I think my comfort and my default is to critique it and just be dissatisfied. And maybe part of that is that I think that that's pushing me to just keep growing or learning or doing better. Like, I feel like I'm like afraid of success as much as I am afraid of failure. So they're kind of working alongside each other in this way where, but I don't really know why I'm afraid of the success part. Like I've just, I don't understand why I'm like, can't just be like, that was a good performance or that was a good thing you made. Like, and I, I'm starting, like, I mean, some ways too with the inner critic, like it's starting to be a little boring, like, especially after like a musical performance, or if I'm like sharing something that's a bit vulnerable, like doing the inner critic, I'm kind of like, ugh, this again, like, it's, it's like not that fun. And it's not that fun for the people around me. Like if they're like, good job. And I'm like, oh no, it was terrible for all these reasons. Like I actually know that if I'm giving someone positive feedback and that's their response, I'm like, shut up. But for myself, like I just feel like that's just an easier place to be. Yeah. So right around here, I start to sense where Carly's limiting belief system about taking up too much space or being overly confident was implanted. Uh, And what you will notice is that I'm about to offer multiple routes to getting there. I think I have a sense of what it is, but you never want to present that directly. The, The meaning of this work is to allow people to get there. So you're about to hear how that hunch turns into clarity that Carly creates for themselves on where this was implanted and by whom. So let's actually look at, even though it's going to make us a little uncomfortable, the 180 degree opposite of that critic. Let's just construct this aspect. What is the opposite? Of the critic, I guess I'm worried the opposite is like conceited or like being like too self-assured or thinking something's good and then having like embarrassment or shame if other people don't. So I think maybe it's like, I guess it's a self-protection because if I think something's good or I am like proud of something or like feeling very assured that this is good work, then maybe I'm the fool because maybe I think it is and other people won't. So what is the critic protecting? I guess it's protecting, I guess it's sort of protecting me from thinking I did a good job when I didn't. Like it's protecting me from feeling vulnerable to critique from other people maybe. Yeah. I heard it loud and clear telling me it's protecting you from being overly self-important, conceited, not self-aware. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what happens when you interact with people like that? Can Does anyone come to mind immediately? You don't have to share their name, but like, do you feel when you think of that persona of not self-aware, conceited, overly self-important, can you get a sense of people like that you've interacted with? Not really. I feel like the people who I feel like envious and like I have friends who are very like confident and I think it's great. Like I never judge someone for having that confidence. I'm like, that's awesome. Like that would be so cool to be able to be embodied in that or something. What was the family value around confidence slash maybe boasting? 
I don't feel like we ever addressed it really. Maybe, maybe it was my brothers. Maybe like I would feel bad like boasting around my brothers or something. Like maybe they would think I was showing off or something. Like I think maybe in the family dynamic, I was more of a show off, but like outside I'm not or something. So how old are your brothers? Older, younger? I have one older and one younger. Okay, cool. Um, And both of them either gave you the sense or maybe even said things that made you feel like they thought you were taking up too much of the spotlight or showing off? Yeah, maybe. I think that could be. Yeah. I actually haven't thought about that. I'm like, yeah, I think that sounds about right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. There was something in there that felt connected to that family dynamic. Yeah. Okay. So we've, we've zeroed in on the brothers. Did you get more attention than they did? I think I tried. (laughs) Um, I don't necessarily think I got more attention than them, but I mean, I like was kind of like a, I think I did seek a lot of attention like when I was younger and in the family. And I also just was kind of like the bad teenager amongst, like I was just sort of the one who acted out the most probably. So um, I probably did take up more space at that time. I mean, it's very different now, but I might have, yes. (laughs) And if you think about kind of the feedback loop, if you did take up too much space, what kind of feedback did you get from your brothers? Probably like a bit of resentment, just that I was taking up a lot of space and that I also then like would ask a lot of them. And I think Yeah, I think there was, I mean, I know there was like resentment from my older brother, like just throughout our lives of me kind of taking up the space, but then at some point also like not prioritizing like family relationship and um, him feeling, I guess, like rejected or something. Okay. And what would they, when they gave you that resentment feedback, what did their actions towards you look like? How could you tell? Well, my brother wrote me a letter one time. (laughs) Um, just about how I prioritized my friends um, over him and that he just felt, I guess, yeah, that he just felt like not cared for by sort of my actions as, and I think this is probably, I think when we had both been at college, but then we'd come home, I think he just felt like I was sort of just really selfish and caught up in my own stuff. Yeah, definitely. I think the sense of me being selfish played out in family dynamics, like kind of showing up or asking for something when I needed something, but not really giving, not really giving, but maybe taking more. It's not like that now, but I think definitely there was a period of time where it was like that. So I think that my brothers were sort of like, oh, right, Carly, like just comes to us when she needs something and kind of is in her own world. Mm -hmm. And when you didn't take up too much space, what kind of feedback did they give you then? In, in kind of flipping that strategy and saying, okay, then I'm going to come in here and not ask for much and not show up really in this way. What kind yeah. of response did you get? I think I got like a positive response, like that they really saw that I cared and sort of made a change in the way that I related to my family overall. So I think, so yeah. You got acceptance. Love, and love, and yeah. acceptance. love and acceptance. Okay. Okay. It's really hard being the middle child, huh? I guess, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're really stuck in a dynamic where the attention is being obviously divided by three. There's a younger one. There's an older one that got the one-on-one time, right? So, you know, I think that 
your child self was really intelligent in saying, well, this is the way as, as the middle child, I'm going to make sure I get the thing I feel that I need for my safety. Mm -hmm. Right. And of course, then that had an impact on your brother's and you got a feedback loop. So we've just identified the limiting belief system and where it was incepted, right? It was incepted from the experience of someone else feeling that you're showing up in a state of confidence or attention seeking somehow took something away from them mm -hmm. and was not acceptable. And so if you were going to do that, they were going to withhold their acceptance, their love, their happiness. If you toned that down, you'd get their love and acceptance and happiness. Right. With it. Fair? Yeah. Okay. Who is that about? Between you and your brother, who is that dynamic, that need for you to take up less space about? Oh, well, it sounds like it's about them. <laughs> and why is it about your brother? Because it sounds like if that is the pattern, then it's because they it was about how they felt in relation to me. And how they felt in relation to self. Right, exactly. Because if we are self-sustaining, which is nearly impossible as a child, but self-sustaining in terms of our sense of security and confidence and, and fitting in and belonging, then it doesn't even occur to us to require someone else to show up differently in order to feel that way. It only occurs to us to require that of our family members if we are lacking those things. Yes. Is that fair? Yeah. So your dynamic with your brother is complex, and I'm sure if your brother were sitting here right now, we would identify ways that you took up space that was about you and your brother needed to put up boundaries. So this is not a judgment or a label. It's a very neutral um, identification for you of the, this limiting belief system about you being overly confident and that being negative came, was incepted into you from someone else based on their own trauma and triggers. Right. Yeah. There? Yeah. So write that down. The limiting belief system I have about showing up in confidence is about taking care of my brother's need for whatever comes to you. What did your brother need? where then he required that you he needed like he needed me to be like showing him I needed him like he kind of always was like you don't call me for advice or you don't need me or you you never ask me uh, you know that kind of thing so I guess for my brother's need for feeling needed <laughs> yeah great so what is the critic popping up to take care of for you then ask it it's standing there on the stage Knowing what you now know about this dynamic, ask it. What were what are you what were you trying to take care of? What's it trying to ensure doesn't happen? Oh, that I have the confidence. Why? Look at what you just wrote down about your brother. Why is it trying to make sure you don't have the confidence? So that I take care of other people. So that you don't hurt other people. Right. Because the story in your mind yes, is Yes, exactly. Yes. <laughs> Say it back. Um, my inner critic is showing up to make sure that I'm not hurting other people. By being? By being too confident in myself or like going forward with my own successes. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. So great. Thank you, critic, 
because that was a survival mechanism, this love and relationship with your brother. And I bet others, I think your brother's probably one facet. I think there's other facets. Yeah, that saying that out loud actually just made me realize other other areas I do this in. Yeah. So it's your way of taking care of other people or reducing harm. Yes. What is the reality about making yourself small to make other people feel big? What is that actually telling them? Wow. This is exact. That is so accurate. Um, that's not so great because it's almost telling the other people that they can't be big on their own. It's sort of being yes. like, <laughs> you aren't good enough on your own. So I will, by comparison, be less good so that you seem good. But that's kind of taking away their power of their own ability to be good on their own without. Yes. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Write that down. When I shrink, so that other people feel taller, I am telling them they are small. Wow. Yes. <laughs> the hard work is to detect that from others and still show up in your grandness. Why? Right. Because that is in your highest good and their highest good. Yes. That is the hard work because when we can sense the discomfort when we can sense the desire for, you make me comfortable, come on, then the easy thing to do is say, okay, I'll make you comfortable. The hard work is to say, no, I'm going to show up in the magnitude of who I am because you can handle it. Because that's how strong you are. I can tell you personally, this is the dynamic, I, the role I have played for my family, for my mom, for my sister, for my dad, and then for my, you know, at that time, husband, now ex-husband. It was my presence is so large <laughs> that sometimes it's literally, I was told, too much. Yes. Right? Yeah. So what am I going to do? I will bring it down. That way you can be large. Yes. Right? But what that created was a dynamic where it required me to stay small. And when my back started hurting from bending down so often, and sometimes I stood up to be who I was, the reaction was, whoa, whoa, whoa. We can't handle it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. The outcome of me realizing that was to show up in that fullness of who I am and help most of them realize that actually they can meet me there, but I had to consistently keep coming forward in that way. Wow. Yeah. Does that resonate? Yeah. So much. Um, so, so much. Cause, um, something I've noticed that I keep doing, like in terms of music is, um, I keep playing backup for people <laughs> and, but I'm a lead, I'm a lead person but I keep like joining other people's projects and playing supportive roles in their projects because I think that exact thing sort of, and then in those dynamics sort of playing less or singing less or doing less because I'm in a supportive role, but I think I want to be in this other role. And so I think I do do that and I'll sing softer or not take up the space because I'm like, well, this is their, project. I think there's a time and place like I can be in a supportive role, but I think ultimately that's not my that's not my 
my role isn't to play the backup guitar or to do backup vocals because that's not who I am. Right. And what happened is the strategy that your younger self so intelligently designed Mm -hmm. to keep you safe is outdated. It went from keeping you safe to keeping you small. So we need to thank that strategy and tell it it's time to let go because it's not serving you. It's not even keeping you safe anymore. It's putting you in precarious financial situations. Right. Right? So Mm -hmm. it is literally antiquated. Mm -hmm. It's not a strategy that works, but we're very thankful to it. This is the piece about it not being disposable. Yes. So the same thing with this inner critic, that's a, that is a manifestation of that strategy, okay? And it is really successful. It knows how to talk to you. It even knows how to make you let it speak out loud, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Yeah. Because then it's going to make – people will be comfortable around you. People will assume the best of you. That's what it's trying to do. What does it need to hear now? What's the truth? I think the truth is that people will still feel comfortable around me if I like step into my biggest self or something that like, that won't scare people. I think I'm afraid of, yeah, I think I'm afraid of like repelling people if I'm overly comfortable with like my skills or talents, I think. Mm -hmm. What's your relationship to empathy and compassion for others? I have a lot. <laughs> is it possible with the extent of empathy and compassion that you contain within yourself that you could ever really cause harm? I think I can cause harm, but I think that it's it is probably unlikely because I do put other people first a lot. I do care a lot about other people. Yeah. So it's unlikely and or unwittingly. If it happens, it's not something you intended to do. No. You're not trying to cause harm or you you are not coming from a strategy of other people needing to be small for you to feel grand. No, I'm very people-pleasing. <laughs> so one of the strategies in our dialogue with critic to convince them that they can move out of the driver's seat and give them a different job is to show them who you are really. Who you are really is a deeply empathetic person. In fact, that's how you can sense that people need you to stay small because you right. can feel them. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so that's your validation that you are so empathetic, you can sense what people need from you and you give it to them without them even asking, which means you are self-aware and externally aware enough not to intend harm. That is a really important statement to keep saying to yourself. My empathy ensures that I never intentionally cause harm because I can sense what people need and I'm compassionate. Now your empathy, which is your superpower, has become your kryptonite. Do you know what is the difference between superpower and kryptonite with empathy? I'm guessing that superpower is using it for using it to move forward. Whereas kryptonite is maybe using it as a protection when something's happening, like using it as a, like a defense as opposed to using it when you're not in a defensive position. Beautiful. And the way that you don't get triggered into using it for your safety is boundaries. Yes. (laughs) The difference between empathy being a superpower and empathy being your kryptonite 
is having boundaries. And those boundaries allow you to utilize empathy for your best interest and, and, and other people's best interest. It's not a scarcity model. This bullshit we've been taught that if we do well, others will fail is not fair. Right. Okay. So, and that boundary allows you to make sure you are well taken care of while you take care of others. When the boundary is not there, and to your beautiful point, we use it as a defense mechanism, which means what I'm hearing is for my safety, what that does is make sure you're not taken care of and you're only taking care of the other people. Which, by the way, is how we get into very toxic relationships. Because narcissists are deeply attracted to empaths. Mm -hmm. So let's bring this all back to your business now. Inner critic... We can say to it, we just want you to have a more productive role in the business. Knowing its skill set, what could it do besides questioning your value or telling you not to own the magnitude of who you are and what you produce, besides doing those things, knowing its skill set, what could it do to help you? I guess maybe just using it as like a sounding board, like being able to look at that and see that if I am afraid of those things, that even if those things are true, that it won't have maybe a negative outcome or something. Yeah. Negative outcome because it can serve as your early warning system. So what it gets to do is just give you things to look out for. Hey, let's make sure the quality is to the best of our ability. Hey, let's make sure the delivery time is what we promised. Hey, let's make sure we utilize this superpower of empathy to really sense what the client needs and wants. Let's make sure it can be your early detection system. It gets to do that. What it does not get to do is barrage you with negative comments and thoughts about how you won't achieve those things or how you did not. It has to, for us to give it this really important responsibility, it has to promise that the other part of you, which is now about to step forward onto the stage, also gets a voice. So now let's access the other side. Have you ever felt that you either are intuitive or are in touch with your intuition or you get senses or ideas that you are knowings that you just know? I do feel that way, yes. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so what does that aspect feel like when that aspect comes forward? It's very cool because um, I feel like validated in my ideas or I guess it, I mean, it feels, it feels really good. (laughs) Yeah. So if the critic makes you feel comfortable, but maybe small, how does the intuitive self make you feel? I mean, it does make me feel powerful. (laughs) Powerful. Beautiful. 
You'll notice here that we've introduced a strategy for Carly to bring higher self into dialogue with inner critic. And what's going to be really important for Carly to be able to utilize this strategy consistently is to be able to tell the difference between the inner critic and higher self. And that difference really is about the way that it feels. So what you notice is I just asked Carly how higher self felt and what they said was powerful. Whereas inner critic, when I asked, felt comfortable yet small or tight. I do that so that the person begins to identify how each of these things show up so that they know that these aspects have shown up and they allow them to come forward and be in dialogue with one another. All right, so let's just invite that aspect to step forward. A second mic has appeared on the stage. And I want this aspect only to speak to me because Critic now has a different job. And I don't need, we don't need an early detection system right now, so it can just sit down for a minute. What do you know is unique and priceless about what you do and what you produce? I think I know that I create like an energy of like enthusiasm and excitement around a project with a client and I'm collaborative and I know that I'm creative and so and I think because in these ways I'm like a perfectionist like I know that I do work hard so I think that people value working with me because they know that I'm and and because I like appreciate other people's ideas. I think I think a lot of it though is giving people kind of that focused attention and sort of dedication to their project and being excited alongside them and kind of validating their ideas too about something and taking their ideas and working with them to create something that they love that they feel a part of, I guess. I'm smiling because your higher self, that's what I call your intuitive self, is so direct and loud <laughs> um, and in a great way. And I can sense how it intimidates other people. <laughs> and I got a list. As soon as I asked you for it to take the stage, it started giving me a list of the value. And I literally was writing it down. You said some of them. Energy, enthusiasm, creativity, collaboration, dedication, quality, artistry. I make other people feel seen. Mm-hmm. Does that I resonate? Do, I really make people feel seen. Yes, that is that does resonate. <laughs> so just now, I very directly asked Carly if they could hear their intuition, and that's because I could hear their intuition loud and clear, which tells me that I'm dealing with a highly intuitive person. What that means is that this higher self is in constant dialogue with them. And sometimes... What we do when we are trying to take care of other people by not taking up too much space is we sense the power of that intuitive voice. We sense how uh, in line with our truth and our confidence that voice is, and we shy away from it, especially if we have a storyline that us taking up too much space is going to cause harm or make us unsafe. And so sometimes we start to, you know, couple our intuition with a sense of being overly confident or taking up too much space. And this is where it's important that intuition is allowed to step forward and be given its due. You know how we thanked Inner Critic for its help and gave it another job? 
We have the opposite work to do with this intuitive self. Because what have we done to this intuitive voice all this time? I mean, I think I've shut it down. And what do you want to say to it? Because it is literally only there to help you thrive in your purpose and make you and other people thrive. I mean, I guess it would be appropriate to try to let it step forward and be more present without the inner critic constantly like squashing it. You know what's so funny about this dynamic? Sounds like this dynamic of childhood yeah. where one is getting squashed so the other can get attention. Yeah. So you literally recreated that internally. Your limiting belief, your storyline was this feeling of lack of, you know, not standing out, of not getting enough, of protecting all those things should be louder than this confident, powerful, intuitive, right? So now what we say to this intuitive self, just like we thanked the critic is, man, I am sorry I kept you in the closet for so long. Totally. <laughs> and you now are absolutely invited and embraced to step forward. So I introduced this visual of this stage with two microphones and two spotlights because this is actually a strategy. Can you get a sense of how you would put this strategy to work when the critic is so loud? Yeah, I think it's, I mean, I think it works with me to have the visual to actually just sit and break that down and have, like, I feel like I could see myself using it and giving them each the mic and kind of seeing the two, the conversation the two are having. So I guess am I maybe trying to dim the spotlight on the critic and sort of allow the intuitive self to how about in the beginning, we just let them share the spot. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Baby steps. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because I don't think I'd be able to jump to that. So yeah. Critics going to be like, hell no, you're not getting rid of me. And we're not. Yeah. Remember, we've given them a new job. But this is now about, listen, there's a second aspect here that deserves the spotlight too. And we're going to learn how to share it. Right? So one of the most common areas where this dynamic is going to need your practice and going to pop up is around pricing your work. And the second one is going to be around not criticizing your work out loud. Right. Okay? Yeah. So we need higher self, intuitive self, to be in the driver's seat around the pricing and the presentation of your work. Now that they are at the mic, I just want to ask them, what do they know about the way your work needs to be priced. It's going to come to you right away. It's the first thing that you think. I mean, I think they know that there is a value on this because it's a specialized thing that not everyone can provide and that people are coming to me because I'm an accessible, warm person that they can get it done instead of going somewhere where they don't have maybe a sense of connection with the person. 1,000%. That is what I heard. <laughs> I heard so clearly our differentiator is so vast that people need to pay for that, right? It's like going to a Michelin star restaurant or going to Wendy's. Your higher self is very clearly identifying you as the Michelin star restaurant. <laughs> and is that okay that you be at that quality level? I think, I think it is. I think I feel like I'm not there yet because I'm new in the practice. So I think I feel like I don't have the right to be there yet because I haven't learned enough. 
What evidence do you have that you are either there or very close? Well, I guess that people keep coming to me. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> no, we have evidence, right? So there we go right there, that dynamic between critic and higher self. I acted as higher self right there, but that's what would happen, right? Because when I say to you, it's clear that your intuition knows that you are differentiated and you are the Michelin star, inner critic is like, whoa, 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 Michelin star, let's make sure you do not think so highly of yourself. Yes. <laughs> right? Yeah. That is the moment right there to turn to intuition and say, what do you have to say about that? So your only commitment coming out of this right now is that any time inner critic pops up and is trying to, that you at least turn to, because you just promised them that you would take them out of the closet, so that you at least turn to them and say, do you have something to say to that? Right. Yes. Yeah. Is that fair? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So in intuitively pricing your work, does it need to be on the mid end, higher end? Where does it need to be? I'm currently placing it in the mid, but I guess, I guess I should be placing it on the high because when I place it on the mid, I end up feeling bad. Like I didn't give myself what I should, but then of course, then the critic is like, well, you don't get to be on the high because you're not at that level yet. But I do, I, I guess I do feel comfortable as I kind of work more to sort of start mid and continue up as long as I'm not on the low. Absolutely. And guess what we get to tell critic? There's such a thing as economics 101, supply and demand. Yeah. If the demand for what you're doing is sustained and growing, one, and the feedback is always, or most of the time, really good, those are the two data points you need to influence your pricing. You're not doing it arbitrarily, right? When I asked you how do you get the constant flow of clients, which is impressive, and you told me word of mouth, I immediately thought, man, they're really good at what they do. That was evidence to me. I don't have your inner critic, right? Yeah. So it was clear. So the other strategy with critic is evidence. I can price it at this level because this is the feedback we're getting and this is the constant stream of requests we're getting, of demand. And because you come highly recommended, people will pay your rate. Right. I don't have to say this as much to people who have identified as male since their birth. Totally. <laughs> Why do you think that is? Well, because they're told over and over that they deserve what they get. <laughs> Correct. I am telling you, you deserve what you get, as is your higher self. So all of the, the ways that we have conformed to what society is telling us we deserve, that does not serve you. Those external messages don't help. The inner critic in their old job doesn't help. In their new job, early detection system, that's it. Right? Higher self knows exactly what's up. That's the one who gets the authority to make these decisions. I mean, I honestly feel like that's enough for you to really put into practice, yes. but I want to make sure you don't have anything dangling or any questions or anything that feels like, oh, it's not resolved yet. I guess I have this one situation that happened where, um, because what happens is whenever I go through the process, like 
there always is an anxiety wrapped up. And once I finish the product or give the price, I know part of it is that I need to set the price ahead of time and be firm and keep it at that instead of, because I think I've had some like loose scenarios where we don't really set the price ahead. And then, and I know that that's probably when the anxiety especially happens is if it happens after, and then I'm like, wait, but we didn't agree on, but there was a time where there hadn't been, I was doing a custom job and it was going to be in someone else's show. It was an artist who was outsourcing something. And I ended up doing this thing and they hadn't negotiated the rate with me ahead of time. And so, and then I was kind of coached after I finished to like, people had been like, you deserve this charge this. And I did. And then they ended up cutting it in half and saying, we can't. And so I think that that sort of validated all my anxieties that like, I wasn't, that the work wasn't good enough or, I know that I should have just um, figured it out with them ahead of time, but I had been told by one person like, oh, just keep track of your time. And then like, so it's like certain moments suddenly, like they are the exact, and then they validate, oh, I was, my inner critic was right. Like it wasn't worth that. And I overcharged or something like that. So, so those experiences did not validate your inner critic. Your inner critic is perceiving those experiences as validating it, right? right. That experience of um, not getting paid your full worth taught you what? I can tell you three business lessons right now that you learned from that, that you will do differently from now on. I learned to set the rate ahead of time. Set the rate ahead of time. The communication. That was sort of my big takeaway, but I'd love to hear what you. Three things from now on. Set the rate ahead of time. You get it in writing and you get a deposit before you touch anything. Yes. Yes. Because I've had issues about collecting. Yes. Yes. That is like. Really good. Your business security model. That's good. Hey, you want me to do this because I've been highly referred to you? Awesome. Great. This is how I work. This is what I will give you. I will look at the piece. I will give you an estimate. I will put that in writing. You will sign a contract and I require an X percent deposit. Sound good? Sound good? Great. That is a very rational way to do business. If anyone tells you that is not okay, then they need to go find somebody else. That's good. Yeah. And if you are about to go do that and critic pops up, what's your strategy? My strategy will say, no, this is for, this is rational and I deserve this. This is actually very straightforward and it'll protect me ultimately and the client from any confusion or misunderstandings. Yes. And if it still is loud, what did we just promise intuition? We promised to give intuition some spotlight. Yeah. So if you start to do this and inner critic is taking up a lot of space, you okay, hold on a minute. I promised higher self a, a go. Yeah. And just hear what they have to say. Fair? Yes. <laughs> okay. All right. So I'm gonna ask you to take a deep breath and just after your deep breath, tell me what is the biggest thing you took away from this? How did this feel for you today? Deep breath. I think my biggest takeaway is to actually recognize the patterns within myself with the inner critic and the intuitive self and to see how allowing my higher self to take up more space does not harm other people, which is something I care a lot about. Um, And that I'm able to 
I guess, do something that benefits me that also benefits other people and doesn't just supporting myself does not take away from other people. I think that's really huge. And because I think that that is just something that I'm always afraid of. But I think knowing that the two can coexist is like gives me a lot of peace. (laughs) Beautiful. And does it feel like a realistic strategy you can employ and that you will? I think it really, yeah, I think it really does because I know that I can feel successful on my own and not be taking something away from someone that I think the scarcity, I think that that is just, I think I can really sort of deconstruct that. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Because I really think that what you put out into the world is something that enriches people. It makes them feel good. It makes them feel seen. It makes them feel happy. And you need to feel empowered and well taken care of so that you can keep doing that. Yes. So in this session, we saw a theme come through that I see with a lot of my clients that would fall in the category of creatives, whether they're performers or musicians or authors. And that is that, firstly, those that are highly creative are highly intuitive, period. And one, reclaiming the relationship with intuition as being a superpower becomes really important for them in business. Because creatives are taught sometimes in the business world not to trust themselves or that the way that they show up is too sensitive, too soft, too fluid, whatever it might be. These terms are not helpful in really standing in your power around what your value is. And so as I work with people in the creative industry, it becomes really important to put them in alignment with their intuition and let their intuition get in the driver's seat on business so that they can stand in their value. Thanks for listening to Signal. This podcast is hosted by me, Maury Fontanez, and produced by myself, Anais Aslami, and the talented team at Terra Firma, Casey Helmick and Lauren Hall. Please join us again next week for another great episode of Signal. Signal.